Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to this bonus episode of History and Film, where Logan has successfully got me to watch a horror <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a rare occurrence that this happens. Yeah. But <laughs> did you like it? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Well... I don't know. I'm gonna keep trying. Okay, I'm gonna keep okay, trying okay. still. <laughs> no, I can. I will say. I will say right off the bat here before we get into the details and talk about all the history stuff that is or isn't here that I appreciate the quality of the filmmaking itself. But even horror elements aside, I think it gets too much away from any character development just to be about the boogeyman and the the overarch. You know the the cloud that's hanging over this family, that's the main character. And there's no actual development or no actual character stuff going on or real interesting story with the people of themselves. It just seems too cookie cutter and overly simplistic and that the boogeyman is all that matters and, I don't, and you don't ever actually get any answers there. So I just thought it was kind of a hot mess, but it was aesthetically pleasing and it's like there, there's definitely some skill into the filmmaking but i hated well, the story and all that i don't think the point i don't think the point of the movie was to have an intricate story as much as it was to like showcase the themes and the environment and the atmosphere of you know this family that's depressed and is, well then why didn't you love valhalla rising because that's all that was yeah i don't know <laughs> I guess because it, uh, it was more boring. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I guess I wouldn't call this boring. You're right. That's that's probably fair. That this at least kept you more engaged. Yeah, it was suspenseful. I just found it ultimately utterly unsatisfying, and just also just a hot mess of random intentions and what was going on, and I didn't really care by the end, and it just and it just there was no through. Th- and what was the through arc? Like and again, so we're gonna spoil this movie for those who haven't seen The Witch. It, it is probably worth worth watching. And I and honestly, even though I didn't like it, it makes me more interested in watching uh, Robert Eggers' next film, The Lighthouse, which I still haven't seen either. Oh, you haven't seen The Lighthouse? No, right. Which also has better reviews than this. So I, I am more excited to see The Lighthouse now, even though I didn't like The Witch. I think you would like The Lighthouse more. Number one, because it has basically no horror elements, but. The performances are more, uh, what's the word I want to use? Nuanced or less? No, uh, like dynamic. Oh, like... they're bigger. They're bigger. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're bigger. Yeah. Oh, they're pretty big in this one, but yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, but like, I'm talking like long, one take monologues. Oh, okay, gotcha. Multiple times from Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson in that movie. So The Lighthouse can almost just be like a play or a two-man show. Or it is basically it is a two-man show, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's, yeah, there's only the two yeah. the two dudes. Wait, wait, we're not here to talk about The Lighthouse. <laughs> we're here to talk about The Witch. So it is set in 1630s New England, but it doesn't get more specific than that. It is not referring to a specific colony or even an exact time. There's no actual historical characters, but it is in keeping with the world at this time and 
to give Robert Eggers even a little more credit too, at the at the end, he kind of mentions that he didn't make this all up whole cloth, even though it is about a witch kind of nearby haunting this family. Or it's also one of those things where it's hard to tell what's real and what's not, and we can get into all that as well. But yeah. he did pull it from actual sources because the people at this time did believe it, the threats of witchcraft were very real. So writings that they would have had at the time would have reflected that. And he used some of those right. things when he was writing the script. Yeah. So it's based on, I hate to say it's based on actual stories when it's about a witch, but it's, it is based on the stories of the stories. So like, I don't know. It's based on real lies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it is Robert Eggers uh, feature film. He had done a lot of shorts before that. He has sensed in the lighthouse and then his upcoming film, The Northman, which actually may be out by the time this airs, right? I am so excited for it. And I'm less so. I, I guess I guess I, I see the trailer for it and I like the idea that it's basically Hamlet, but I also it just doesn't it's Robert Eggers <laughs> directing a Viking movie that's basically Hamlet. Yeah, I'm there. Right. But it looks like it gets me, it just looks like Valhalla Rising, where it looks like it's just gonna be a bunch of bloody fighting with nothing else interesting happening. Oh, there will be a lot of bloody fighting. <laughs> so like cause so think about like the violence in this movie is there is some violence, but it it's still pretty subdued. It's there's not like a ton of like gory, you know, like slasher horror movie style violence. Fair. Yeah, fair. But in a movie about Vikings, there's going to be people getting, like, limbs chopped off. And I'm excited to see Robert Eggers showing me some chopped off Viking heads. <laughs> we have very different interests in movies. <laughs> <laughs> and it also, though, does star in uh, The Witch here. Again, not to get back to, onto The Northman. Anna Taylor-Joy. And, and I didn't realize it was, this was her first film as well. And she's kind of... This is a 2015 yeah. film. and. And she's kind of, I mean, shoot, she's blown up more than Robert Eggers has. I mean, he's obviously becoming more and more touted and is going to continue to get more and more stars wanting to work with him. But Anna Taylor-Joy, you know, going from, and I don't know her whole filmology off the top of my head, but, you know, uh, she was, you know, that, that remake of Emma. And then most famously here was Queen's Gambit. Well, she was in Split before that. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Is she in that as well? Shyamalan. The M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah. She didn't really have a big role in that one. Okay. Yeah, no, she's she is uh she's really good. So because this doesn't deal with specific historical people or specific historical events, we will kind of spend a little more time just kind of talking about the movie itself because it's fun. But I also kind of wrote down some questions almost kind of to myself as I was watching the film. And I kind of wanted to go through and just discuss what comes up in the film if we are going to use this as, as kind of a bonus episode, but if we are going to mm -hmm. use this to look at the history of America and the colonies that were established here at this time, I do think there are some things that are definitely relevant and you can maybe even kind of glean from, from this film. And so the first question I wrote down, and maybe it's kind of obvious, but I just didn't know specific examples. I, I was like, did these early colonies ever banish people? Because we do see the family, the reason they're kind of alone in the woods with a lot, without a lot of help uh, around them is the opening scene is them being banished over some kind of unnamed dispute. It just seems to be like a matter of faith and the main, yeah, the main some, family. Yeah, Some sort of church something happens to where they their family is, is kind of, yeah, given the boot. Which, that was something that was at first frustrating, but as it went on, I, like, appreciated it more, was 
the way that the dialogue is given in this movie is in a, I guess, what the filmmaker's best approximation of like 17th century English yes. would have sounded like, like early American English, which it's like, uh, it's not really just straight up British, but it's also not, it's obviously not American yet. Oh, right. Th- their accents are very unique. Yes, you're right. Their accents are very unique. And like the way that they talk is definitely like from that time period. They don't sound like they're they're not just in, you know, costumes from the 1630s giving dialogue like someone in 2015 would give. Right. And I always wonder how accurate it's hard to ever know how accurate when they do that is. I did appreciate the effort. Sometimes you kind of wonder, are they going too far? And actually, it wouldn't sound like that, too. I think you see that a lot with like Shakespearean stuff. Of course, again, this is basically on the cusp of I mean, William Shakespeare would have died, you know, not much before this. Yeah. But again, are we... Just because he, Shakespeare wrote that way, that's not how people actually talked. So that was like, that was the stage. So I also wonder, too, if with a film like this, is this how people actually talked? Or is it how they wrote? And that, so that historians are saying this is how they talked as well. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Just based on how much like care and attention was paid to the rest of the historical aspects of the film, like their dress, their tools... The you know farm that they build, the firearms, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Just because of how accurate all that stuff is, I'm assuming they at least consulted with historians. Like, hey, how would people? Act? That's fair. And, yeah, and it's you know some people might think that it's annoying because it is kind of hard to understand sometimes what exactly they're talking about. Like, I know, so I I saw this in theaters, but I also pretty much every time I've watched it subsequently, uh, I've watched it with subtitles mm. just so that I can see the words too yeah um, yeah and and just it, it it helps me understand better yeah so I, I i'm i'm guessing that they were like all right we don't care like how accessible this is to like the vast movie going public right we just right. want their dialogue to be as accurate as possible so let's try and make it sound like they're really in the 1630s and we don't care if we don't really care if people like are gonna like that they can't understand it right it's not about if there's anything lost in translation we don't care what's about being authentic exactly very yes. honestly it makes what it makes me think of is the passion of the christ and how he wanted to use it you know there was uh so obviously it's in like actual aramaic or whatever <laughs> but uh i remember hearing at the time when that came out of course and then, of course that's been you know almost 20 years ago now that Gibson didn't even want subtitles. Oh, really? He just wanted you in the studio basically made it. It's like, okay, you know, we'll let you do it not in English, but you have to have subtitles. But he just yeah. wanted it to be like, you are actually there witnessing it, and you wouldn't have known the language. Right. And I'm like, that's yeah. that's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. So, and actually, then, to your point here, too, a couple of things. One, Agers has said, I, I mentioned Plymouth Plantation, where they kind of have the replica village, you know, just south of Plymouth there, or south of Boston. Mm-hmm. Eggers said he went there a ton growing up and was kind of obsessed with it. So, like, mm. this movie is almost based off of Plymouth Plantation yeah. combined with his interest in kind of witchcraft stories and stuff. And then I, one of my questions also was the use of thee and thy and all that kind of stuff. So it was used kind of extensively up through the 17th century, but actually during the 17th century, and obviously this is the early part of the 17th century here in New England, uh, there was actually a dark drop-off in the usage of thee and thy and thou and all that stuff mm-hmm. in and around London, but it did persist longer outside of L- London, specifically 
in religious groups like this, or the Quakers uh, specifically, they kind of stuck yeah. to that a little longer. Well, because you think about like the King James Bible, which mm. was named after King James, who would have been the king at this time, right? Which is who Jamestown is named after. Like that, that you know, when you think of the King James Bible, you think of all of these and the thous and and thys. I don't often think of the King James Bible. <laughs> well, like in the King James Bible, in in relation to other translations. Like the King James Bible is the one that has all of these and that. Okay. And okay. Okay. And that make and that makes sense. So if right, so if if these you know if like super religious people were exposed to that kind of language all the time, it makes sense that they'd talk like that. And just because I I did suspect we were getting close, King James actually died in 1625. So we are now past his reign and into oh okay King Charles the first who will ultimately beheaded. But at the time of the story, he, King Charles the first would have been King of England. Sorry, not to not to undercut your your whole point there, but I guess I was just thinking of Jamestown. No, right. This would this would have been this is like what twenty twenty five years after Jamestown, right? That honestly, that ten fifteen years jump from last our last episode, so we, yeah, the sixteen twenty Mayflower was James the first. He died five years after that, and now we're into the reign of Charles the first. Okay, which is why you get into the colonies, then be, the the colors the yeah the colonies then become like Charleston, South Carolina, and all that kind of right. stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. The famous example, again, my whole question was where people actually banished. But again, this is going to be nothing but a tangent episode. So <laughs> the, the famous example was when I Googled it, and I kind of knew I would find yes, but I, I kind of forgot off the top of my head that there would be famous examples like Roger Williams, who was banished from Massachusetts Bay Colony and went on to found Rhode Island. So mm. there, there were definitely uh, instances of people getting banished for over disagreements with with the colonies right another thing we see really early on actually again they think it's as the family's leaving the community they're kind of closing the doors behind them i saw the people you know soldiers like wearing the what you i would call the conquistador helmets mm. and i always associated those with the spanish and so to me that was kind of a big big red flag at first but again to your point with them kind of doing their due diligence it does look like they were right those helmets started with the spanish but yeah. gained popularity and were used all over Europe. So it, it would actually be realistic that English troops would actually be wearing those helmets at the time. So I actually had a similar thought, not when I watched the movie. I guess I just didn't, it must not have registered. But when I was looking for videos and stuff on the uh, the matchlock musket, one of the demos was done by a guy wearing that armor with that style of helmet. And I was like, why is this guy at an English fort with a Spanish-looking helmet on? But oh, right. Then I looked it up and and saw the same thing that yeah that 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 style of helmet was adopted by other militaries, even though it's like mostly most people probably associate it with the Spanish, right? And and they did originate it. And actually, too, yeah. I guess I you watched the New World more recently than I did. Do they have it mm-hmm. that helmet in that movie as well? I kind of forget. Uh, I kind of feel like they do, maybe, but I don't remember. You know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna look and see if I can find like a screenshot or something. Okay. Yeah. Hang on a second, Rich. I'm gonna watch the New World real fast. <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you know. Just stay on the line. <laughs> uh oh. Yep. Right here in the poster for the movie, there's a guy wearing one of those helmets. Oh, see, that's okay. I was thinking that it was it was fairly prominent. Well, and let's let's actually go from that to then then the rifle. So I was kind of curious about 
the flintlock rifle that we see the dad use in the film. And again, I'm guessing that's just kind of accurate to the time. And there wasn't a lot of variety in weapons at the time either, right? Like basically that was the rifle you would have. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's not a flintlock. Oh, it is a matchlock. What's the difference? So in the history of firearms, the first version the first like mechanism of firing was this style of gun that we see this style of musket which is a matchlock which basically is powder in a pan and then powder in the chamber with the you know your wad and your ball and instead of on so on a flintlock it's a piece of flint striking steel that ignites the powder on a matchlock like we see in the movie you have this long rope this match that you have to keep lit and you put that in a little fork and then when you pull this lever it lowers that lit match down into the pan that ignites the powder okay so you create the fire first and then add the fire to the gunpowder versus in the in a matchlock versus in a flintlock there is no pre-existing fire you basically strike the spark as you're firing right yeah that's the, that's the significant difference. So matchlocks were first, yeah. and then flintlock, flintlocks came later. Right. So it, it basically, the lineage from like matchlocks to guns that we have today, you have matchlocks, which uses the match, and then you have the development of a style called the wheel lock, which is like a spring-loaded wheel that spins, and it spins, I think it was pyrite they actually used to make a spark. Hmm. But those are like really intricate and were expensive, so they weren't really used in militaries that much, that much mostly for like hunting. And then you have the flintlocks, and then after like 200 years of flintlocks, then you would get percussion caps where you didn't have to use a flint and powder anymore, and then you have cartridge-based systems that's kind of like the, basically the precursor to like the modern bullet, that, and those were like the mid to late 19th century. And not to get all over the place, this is one that hadn't occurred to me, it was people will talk about, not you know, I don't want to get into the, the you know a Second Amendment de- debate, but just from a h- intellectual standpoint, people will talk about like, well, hey, when the founders wrote the Second Amendment, they didn't have, they didn't have modern assault rifles or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And people were like, yeah, they didn't even have bullets yet. I'm like, wait, what? And I guess I didn't even think about it because a bullet, the idea is that the gunpowder and the ball are connected into one thing that they didn't exist right. in the 1700s because it was the whole yeah. ram pack thing where you yeah. had an s- explosion separate from the ball. I'm like, bullets didn't even exist when they wrote the Second Amendment? That's just mind-blowing. Right. Anyway. But so, yeah, so, and to your point about having to ram the ball and everything, a very skilled and, like, practice person with a matchlock musket could probably get two rounds a minute. Okay, yeah, okay. Because for every for every shot, you have to take a small amount of powder, and it can't be too little, or you won't ignite the full charge, and it can't be too much, or you'll get what happens in the movie, where you lower the match down on there, and you you know you can get what's called a flash in the pan, where it won't even ignite the powder. Because it, it basically blows up too soon, and just blows up outside the chamber. Right, essentially. and uh, okay. that's bad, because that's like right where your face is. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised the dad in the movie isn't more hurt by that, honestly. So that's, yeah, it's not good. It can blow, yeah, burning gunpowder into your face, which actually, if you don't, like, clean that out basically immediately, the burning gunpowder, it, like, it will tattoo, essentially, tattoo your face. I was thinking that, yeah, it can scar, yeah, yeah, basically it's a tattoo, that's crazy. But yeah, so you have to put a little bit of the correct amount of powder in this little, in the pan, then close it, then turn the musket standing up, so you would... You would pour a little bit of this powder, then you put the powder, the rest of the powder down the muzzle, muzzle. Yeah. and then take that paper and punch that down with the rod right. that's connected to your rifle, 
and then you put the shot down there and ram that down. Then you got to put the rod back. Then you got to lip, you know, shoulder the rifle. That's why two per minute is fast, right? Right. Open the pan again, and then close the or lower the um, lower the match down onto the pan. Yeah, that's crazy. And these weapons were insanely dangerous for their users. Oh, obviously. Yeah. You know, the, we see an example of, you know, like the explosion outside of the just off the pan in the movie. But also when you're a soldier or a- anyone really carrying this rifle, you have to carry loose oh. gunpowder or gunpowder that's wrapped in paper and a lit match with you everywhere you go. Like you just keep the match lit. You have to. You can't light it otherwise. I mean, you can, but it's, it takes a long time. Oh, I guess I'm just picturing... When were matches invented? I'm picturing they could just strike a match. Oh, like with a, no, no, with, no, 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 no. Not, yeah, no, no, no. Not, not a, when I'm talking about the match, I'm talking about that long rope, that wick. But it was still always burning? You ha- Yeah, you had to keep it burning because it was too It was too much of a pain. Yeah, they didn't have, like, wooden matches yet. Oh, right. So I guess, yeah, we would say a match. It's the it's the it's basically the burning string is the match. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like a wick. Okay. And so the the only way to like relight it would be to like take flint and steel and start a fire and then light it. That's crazy. That's crazy. Which you can't do. So yeah. So you have to keep this wick burning all the time and also carry a bunch of like loose gunpowder. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And also it was not it was not ideal for like soldiers and stuff too because if it's nighttime. You have to keep a burning match on you all the time. So, like, it gives away your position either by because you can see the glow or because it's burning, you can smell all these riflemen carrying their, I guess, well, I guess they te- these technically aren't rifles because they're all smooth bore muskets. But yeah, you can smell the these burning matches from like a long ways away. How were bows and arrows not superior? Because a bow doesn't punch a hole through an armor and through a person and out the back of the other armor and into the face of the guy behind them. So sheer force. Sheer force. Yes. And vo- just yeah, the devastation. Velocity. Yep, okay. The devastation. And this, you know, when these are being used, like, militarily, it's all volley fire. So you have, like, four ranks of guys. Basically, you have, like, your pikemen up front with, like, pointy pike spears pointed forward right and then behind them is like several rows of guys with muskets and the first row fires and then they move to the back and then right. the next row fires and and you know meanwhile the guys at the back are reloading so that when they you know rotate back up to the front then they can shoot but if, if they had modern compound bows they actually might have been preferable because they what could could they match the velocity or is, is there just no matching the velocity of a gunshot. No, you're not going to match the velocity, and yeah, okay. the, the the force and the armor defeat capability. Okay. of the bow, even with a, even with a modern compound bow with like a some kind of fancy tip. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Explosions are better than throwing a arrow. <laughs> right. Think about how hard it is to fire a bow when you're on horseback. And now you have a guy on horseback, which is actually cool. So back in the day before there was like, you know, they didn't have like semi-automatic pistols with like a magazine full of bullets that they could just shoot bang, bang, bang at one after another. (laughs) Right. And it takes a long time to reload and it's hard to reload like a muzzle loading pistol when you're on the back of a horse. So they would actually just carry like a bunch of pistols on the horse and like they shoot one bang and then put it back. Yes, yeah, you'll see that in movies. They basically pull out their whole gun, shoot one shot, and just throw the gun away because like that's all I'm gonna get to right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they would probably try and keep the gun because like those are expensive. Well, no, 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 but like in a movie, it looks cool to drop it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's kind of one and done. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. 
I like how that's it's a ten second scene in the movie <laughs> that he gave. <laughs> but I was interested about the the history of that rifle there. So we talked about Puritanism last time with the pilgrims coming over and Initially, I wanted to, I wanted to get into a little more detail, but honestly, as I start researching researching this, I kind of just get more confused. I mean, it, it's almost kind of like when we talked about all the disparate native tribes throughout the Americas. That's almost kind of how I feel like when I'm looking at all the different religious groups at the time. And it is the Protestant Reformation as, as you kind of go from Martin Luther to all the things that follow and all these different sects and every group has their own interpretation. So yes, the Puritans were just the ones who didn't think the English Reformation went far enough and they wanted more change. So they wanted something more akin to Calvinism, which then again, I had to research Calvinism and got kind of confused there. (laughs) But it, it basically seems like it boils down to a more active God who is currently rewarding the faithful and punishing the wicked in real time on earth as opposed to maybe the more Catholic thing of in the afterlife, you'll be judged. Is that maybe, am I kind of rounding that to something correct? And then also that the Bible, i.e. not the Pope, to my understanding, is the absolute authority on God. And that's kind of maybe the Calvinist to big tenets. God is actively involved in punishing and rewarding in real time, and that the Bible is the absolute authority. Is that And that's kind of Calvinism as distilled by me, probably poorly. Anything to add there? So I'm not very familiar with Calvinism necessarily. I know that just in Protestant denominations of Christianity, the whole thing about the Pope is definitely true. Right. You know, it's like God is the true authority, not the Pope, basically. And in in a lot of cases, not even the church at all. Right. It becomes an individual's relationship with God as opposed to it being distilled through the authority of a church, right? Yeah, yeah. As far as the Calvinism, the their beliefs on, you know, active God punishing, I, I, I don't know if that's... I, okay. I, I don't know. If, if you read that, then that's probably correct. I just, I don't know off the top of my head what the Calvinists specifically believe. Well, it's kind of my trying to summarize what I had read. Oh, okay. But it also kind of fits if you see the Puritans yeah. and the whole idea of God-fearing... I mean, and again, right. is God fearing as much a Catholic thing as it is a Protestant thing? Maybe, and, and again, I, I'm not an expert on all these kinds of things, but you definitely kind of see that this family in this film is scared to death of kind of simultaneously the wrath of God and the influence of the devil and Satan. And like, it's just, yeah. it's literally driving them crazy. And it's kind of what the whole film is yeah. about. Right. With the kind of specter of this witch that may be in the in the woods nearby, it kind of influencing things. But again, just they're definitely worried in real time that they are falling in and out of God's favor. In a weird way, it almost seems more more kind of pagany if you think about it, where you just think about like you know, oh, though Ornodin has forsaken us, we must make a sacrifice. Like they don't seem too far removed from that kind of pagan mindset in their approach to. Christianity, and I probably just offended somebody. Yeah, well, and it's it wouldn't be like a sacrifice like they would sacrifice, you know, a goat or something. It's more like a sacrifice like I need to just make myself more devout and Pure. devoted and like remove any and all, any semblance of anything that might be considered a vice I need to get rid of. And yeah, yeah, basically like live my life as miserably as possible <laughs> right very aesthetic no 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 dancing like in footloose and all that kind of stuff right yeah yeah so my other question i asked was how common 
was regret among settlers and wanting to return to Europe, which we see the mother in the film is basically just like, screw this, I just want to go back home. And at first, the dad thinks he, she means like the community that he's got kicked out of. She's like, no, England. <laughs> like, yeah, let's go back. So I couldn't really find much specifically about that. At the end of the day, it was such a long, taxing, and expensive voyage. Returning was not common just because of the logistics. Yeah, I was I was thinking that, and this was, you know, based off of nothing other than just kind of my intuition about it, but it seems like for a lot of these people, like, that's a one-way trip. Yeah, no, and that's the case, yeah. Like, it takes so much money and time and effort, like, especially if you survive the voyage which was like <laughs> not a given yeah it's not uncommon that people would just die on the ship from disease or whatever right like you're gonna roll those dice again to go back to england right right <laughs> yeah so yeah reg- regret may or may not have been particularly common I, I, inevitably these were humans there were going to be regrets at times but just because yeah. you had those regrets yeah you probably almost certainly were not going back yeah. I did read they talked about some people who may have intended on settling. If it wasn't really for them, they may have become part of... Because there were still uh, merchants going back and forth. I mean, trips were made. Yeah. So someone may have shifted from, ah, I was going to colonize, but you know what? I'm just going to kind of be part of the taxi squad going going back and forth here, ferry and stuff. Sure. And, so, and Yeah, so that, that was kind of about all I, all I found on that. And then, I have to make this too, too dark and get us like banned or people want to come burn us to the stake. I wanted to talk about the history of witchcraft itself. Mm. Not necessarily how it plays into the film. We'll, we'll come back to what we see in the film because there's definitely more to talk about there as well. It gets a little tricky because it kind of becomes a whole semantic argument on how you're defining a witch. And a lot of the things we associate and what we see in this film, what they're hinting at, the kind of covens of witches, you know, casting spells, that kind of stuff is kind of a medieval European invention. But obviously there are people all around the world dealing with occult things. And another, uh, again, this is just a definition thing. Occult basically just refers to any non-religious supernatural stuff. So, sure, yeah. yeah, so it's... It's supernatural and dealing with things outside of our physical world, but not in a way that conforms with a particular religious belief. So things in, say, I don't know, tribes in Africa doing those kinds of things and Southeast Asia. You you think about other places in the world maybe dealing with the occult. The idea of calling them witches, that's kind of a modern label being put on them and not necessarily tied into what we see in the film today. Does that make sense? the witchcraft we think of and burning witches is is European. Isn't it more like a just kind of like a European like a Eurocentric view of like what those people represent in that society by calling someone like a witch doctor? It's like yes, well, like not really because it's more of like a spiritual, like religious thing, right? Whereas in just because it's not you know because they're not christian right the like a european colonizer would say oh that's a witch right that's a witch doctor yes it's it's oversimplifying it and rounding it to the european example so yeah. so most of what we think of is really kind of a european thing but it's kind of interesting how you get to like the to modern stuff they kind of talked about well uh, uh, you know astrology or like people that like think crystals are a thing and that, that's not really considered the occult nowadays it's kind of considered you know if you think, oh, this crystal gives off an electricity that, you know, makes my mood better, that's more of the category of what we'd call pseudoscience. 
because it's not really considered dark or occult right or even really supernatural it's just kind of bunk science right well i was gonna say and because like the evidence or the justification for why that stuff works is not framed as a religious or supernatural true it's framed as no this is like scientifically true this crystal does whatever right that's just yeah that's just being wrong about science that has nothing to do with with supernatural forces yeah yeah so there was a a historian that i thought this is kind of interesting it was on wikipedia but i think they were citing a specific historian it's basically it's a breakdown of the five common aspects associated with our modern concept of witchcraft and what kind of distinguishes it so one, these practitioners, these quote witches are using magic to harm others. So specifically harm is like the first thing. And the two, that harm tends to be directed against members of their own community. So they're not doing it to strangers or across the world or whatever. Three, their actions are immoral or evil, of course, or possibly in conjunction with evil spirits. Four, the witch's powers are either inherited, you know, genetically, or gained through some initiation rite. So it's not just something anybody can do. You have to either have inherited it or have earned it through, again, some initiation or compact with, you know, a dark force. And five, that they can be defeated or challenged through peaceful or violent intervention, which I know is a wide swath, but that basically goes anywhere from basically saying intervention needs to occur to challenge a witch so that's either asking them politely to stop or burning them at the stake and anywhere in between (laughs) (laughs) but the intervention is required if you're dealing with a witch you can't just like wait wait it out i guess anyway and and where were these where were these five tenets or these five rules where did they come from it's it's on wikipedia but i think they said it was kind of like a historian who kind of broke it down it's just kind of rounding what we've seen and how it kind of fits into our modern concept of what and basically these are kind of the themes i guess of what makes something something a witch and one i guess one of the other asterisks here too and this is something that doesn't seem to in it's mostly semantics, but say what differs a witch from, say, a sorcerer is that a witch might not even know they are a witch. They could just be kind of like cursed and bad things happen around them. And it is, doesn't always have to be apt, active. And then, and then also it was saying that witches don't need objects to affect their magic. They can just kind of make things happen or, you know, put a hex on you without doing anything versus a sorcerer would be like using the magic wand to cast a spell. Mm. Uh, so almost kind of like the Shakespeare, Macbeth, double, double toil and trouble stuff. That's more sorcery. But then if you just kind of get sick when you're around me, that's witchcraft. Mm. And again, that's all kind of semantic. And it's all it's all made up. Like this stuff isn't real. Right. <laughs> 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 Wait, so so you're telling me that uh, Harry Potter is semantically and historically inaccurate when they're using their wands and call themselves witches? Right, but then they even talk about like the Sorcerer's Stone and stuff. Yeah, it seems a little inconsistent there. I, I don't I don't think she did her research. Yeah. Well, the Sorcerer's Stone isn't that's only in that's only in the that English version. That's or sorry, American version because yeah, in the American version, right? Yeah, it's the philosopher. It's the stone. philosopher stone, right? Right, because I think they use philosopher as to mean sorcerer. So it was a, it was a correct correction to make. We just consider a philosopher only person who a person who talks about like philosophy versus I think in England it does mean sorcerer. So anyway, the uh, the the fourth the fourth rule. Uh, the one about having to, you know, have a covenant. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I thought that was kind of an interesting thing in the movie that when at the end, when Anya Taylor Joy is, you know, her whole family is basically dead. So she's, you know, talking to Black Philip the goat, who, by the way, uh, I don't know if you saw, but I guess in real life, like on set, that goat was a dick to everybody. Oh, really? Like the actual animal? Yeah. <laughs> like that goat was an asshole and super uncooperative and like. Robert Eggers was like, I I know it's a goat, but like I'm trying to make this movie, and he, I just he won't like cooperate or do anything that I want him to do. <laughs> <laughs> that fits. That fits. But anyway, so she's talking to the goat, and he tells her that she needs to, she has to like sign her name or whatever, and she basically she said, well, I can't read or write, like I'm illiterate, right? And he says, oh, I I will guide thy hand, and I just thought, oh, that's kind of interesting that like yeah, you know, we think of like in. Um, Sabrina, when she has to like write her name in the book, it's like, well, what if the person doesn't know how to read or write? How do they sign their covenant? Oh. I guess that, I guess, <laughs> then the devil just kind of helps you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it is. So let's let's talk about just kind of the film itself and how they do deal with witchcraft. This is the one thing I remember seeing in like a trailer when this movie came out in 2015, when uh, Anna Taylor Joy is playing uh, Peekaboo with her little sibling baby, and all of a yeah. sudden she like is. Peekaboo and the baby's gone. And the baby's gone. I, I was, I, I was like, I've seen that scene before. Like I had seen that, and like, maybe not the trailer, but like, if she was probably on, you know, some interview show, and that'd be the cutscene they would have showed. I think it was a trailer. Oh, I'm okay, sure that was one of the trailers. So that was very familiar. So yes, the idea, and then, then of course, one of the, I mean, <laughs> they do and don't show it all at the same time. Like the the witch kills the baby and bathes in its blood. Like yes, yeah, turns it into pomegranate sauce. Basically, yeah, it's what it, that scene looks like. Yeah, right. it's like a giant mortar and pestle type situation. So yeah, so the movie is basically telling you, yes, there is a witch, and it did kill this baby. Yes, but then from the family's point of view, because this witch is kind of isolated off in the woods. Yeah, they just know it went missing. They assume it's a wolf, and of course, the sister doesn't want to dissuade them of that notion because it's scarier to think it just disappeared. And of course, whether they believe me, and then right. and it gets all and it just you have a very superstitious time in general and then so is his family yep. superstitious about what could you know convince it's a wolf but and just kind of all the shades of things that start to happen and you know people get sick and what else is going to happen and i kind of forget the exact order of how this plays out but things aren't going well for the family and they're kind of always not really getting along and the the brother who's like oh i'd say middle school age is going off to check a trap and the older sister is like well i'm gonna go with you and they get separated. Oh, because there's this rabbit. The rabbit is almost kind of meant to be like the spirit of the witch, I'm guessing. It's kind of what it's implied. Yeah, kind of. It, it, bad things happen when the rabbit's around. Right. They're they're looking for the rabbit. And well, yeah, like the first time we see the rabbit is when he's going to shoot it. And instead of being shot, the rabbit just stares at him with a gun. Backfires. Yeah. Yeah. The pan goes off in his face. And Right. And again, they see then the, the rabbit and then the brother and sister get separated. She falls off the horse. He runs after the dog. The dog somehow gets instantly eviscerated. Like there's not really a lot of like the dog, the dog almost like exploded because there's no way that it could get torn up to shreds that quickly. But I guess the witch just kind of like rah, 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 just kind of ate it real quick. Yeah. And then the boy stumbles upon the witch's shack. Right. And it's, it's kind of where they get the it's suspenseful. It, it, it does kind of do a good job of leading up to the, you know, what's going to happen here. And we see a beautiful young woman walk out. Right. Well, we see the witch with the baby. There's not really any, like, good 
shots of it. But it's clearly an old woman. But, right, but you could tell she's, yeah, like, old and, like, she's kind of hunched over. Yeah, I think you right. see gray hair even when she's, right. yeah, smearing the baby guts Versus, over. So the, so the implication to me was that bathing in the blood of a baby gave her her youth back kind of thing. Right, yeah. And she seduce, kind of seduces the, the boy here, too. We just see she, like, kisses the, the boy. Yeah. And then it kind of just cuts away. No, she grabs his head and you see her old oh that's right wrinkled up hand that's true right it's almost, oh, right. Yeah. It almost looks like a dementor's kiss kind of thing where she's uh speaking harry potter where she's kind of like sucking the <laughs> yeah. sucking the life out of him is what kind of what yeah. appears and then we go back to the daughter who's like well he went missing and why were you guys going right. off and that's where the mom starts getting suspicious like you lost the bait you lost the infant now you've lost right. your brother you're the one right. leading us astray and so there's definitely this internal strife and then also the there's the younger the twins that are probably what like eight years old ish give or take Oh, younger than that. Oh, really? Like, okay. Probably four or five. Oh, they—they, they, I don't know. They talk quite a bit. I'll—I'll I'll, I'll split the difference. Give me six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> They're kind of ornery, and they don't listen to the older sister. And then this older sister at one point tries to scare them into submission, which of course then makes them think that maybe she is a witch because she's trying to scare us and say she's a witch and so then when the, the brother goes missing yeah. they're like she's a witch she's a witch she's a witch and so right. it just becomes again that's there's a reason they call these things witch hunts because it just takes very little evidence to get someone completely condemned and when bad yes. and then you get with this this uh, feedback loop of confirmation bias where bad things keep happening and once it's entered in someone's right. head it's like the whole idea of like was it a jonas on a ship where it's just like it's just this bad thing we got to get rid of and it goes back to even like human sacrifices thousands of years ago or whatever where it's just like we have to satisfy the powers that be that we're not the problem this other thing is the problem and we got rid of that other thing so they're definitely starting to blame the older sister and even she's though kind of confused because she doesn't know why the baby disappeared she hasn't seen the switch yet she doesn't know why her younger brother is so and we mentioned too and kind of they don't really deal with this specifically in the film or call it out but the idea that a witch might not know she's a witch is one of the things we looked up in those five, uh, or, or well, anyway, one of those things I found and kind of online. Yeah. So she could actually be making these things happen without wanting to, and, and that's right. kind of why I think even what the father is, you know, kind of trying to get out of her and just kind of make yes. make for darn sure that if we're going to call her a witch, they're certain about it. Of course, then she counter says, "Well, the twins have been talking to the darn goat that we all yep. hate and think might be evil, and so like I right. think they made a pact with the devil through the goat." Basically, it's kind of like a Mexican standoff of witch pointing. Or well, before all of that happens, though, the brother com- the brother comes back in the middle of the night. Uh, yes, yes, sorry, but uh, yeah, naked, and uh, they lay him down up in the up in the top, you know, the rafters or whatever, the, that upper story of their house, and they're trying to they do bloodletting. Oh yeah, they put yeah. that bowl up next to his head and they poke a hole in his That's temple. That's right. Like yeah. yeah, bloodletting because he's like got to get the evil humors like, out. Has right. like fever and yeah. then he's like you know do like contorting himself all weird, like basically acting like like he's possessed by possessed, something. Right. And then, and this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. That actor that plays a kid, Harvey Scrimshaw, does an awesome job in that when he like sits up which i think that was at least a shot of it was in the trailer mm. maybe oh that sounds right yeah where he sits up you know and it has his arms out and he basically like delivers this monologue to jesus yeah and it's all one unbroken shot like man that scene rules you're right that's pretty impressive for yeah he's probably 12 that's pretty impressive yeah yeah very very talented especially for a child actor his age like 
you know, a lot of times those can those kind of performances can be a little awkward when they're, you know, kids, but he did an awesome job. Or they have to be pieced together and like it's one take, like you said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then he dies right after delivering that speech, and that's when Well, and they're they're trying to uh they're like, Oh, we need to pray extra hard to try and save our brother. Yes. And Oh, and then and the twins the little the two little kids are like, Oh, we forgot our prayers. It's because Thomason, our older sister, is a witch, and she, you know, put a curse on us to make us forget our prayers. Right. So then, kind of from that point, that's kind of then, you know, the rest of the movie is just kind of the whole family imploding. Like, and we don't really ever get the answers. And again, I can live with not getting all the answers, but so that's not necessarily my, my big problem. But like the idea of, so the dad ends up locking the twins and Thomason, who again is, yeah, like you said, the older sister, Tom and Taylor Joy. Locks them all together and says with the goat and says, "All right, we'll figure this out in yep. the morning." Because basically, they're, the the twins are saying their sister's a witch, and the sister is saying the twins are 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 do, are the ones doing the witchcraft. Yeah. So, but even within the within the film, you don't know. Wait, so are the twins just playing because they don't know any better, and they're just kind of like, "Haha, this will get her in trouble." Right. And so we're just going to act catatonic, or are they actually catatonic? Are they actually in league with the goat? Which, again, when we see Thomason finally talk to the goat at the end and it talks back, you're like, oh, crap, yeah. the twins actually probably were in league with, with the goat. Right. But then, the, so uh, after the dad locks him up, like, everything just goes to hell overnight. And, like, somehow he wakes up. The, the place where he locked him up is kind of blown open. Thomason's laying there unconscious. The twins have vanished. And there's some other dead farm animals around, and the goat is now loose, which is then right. where the the goat well, kills the father, and yeah, yeah. And there's there's some key evidence in those couple scenes that make me think that like, okay, what we're seeing is the objective truth, like the witch is real, and the witch is the one that's doing all the stuff. So number one, when they get locked in the goat right house, the goat pen overnight by their dad, yeah, yeah, they hear this like scurrying across the roof and then something drops down from the roof into the they hear it drop down into the hay and that's when they see the witch drinking the milk from the goat or drinking the blood from the goat right not the black goat but from a different one right 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 right. not not the black goat one of the other goats right when he goes out there in the morning yeah the goat pen is exploded but there's a giant hole in the roof of the goat pen oh okay yeah and then the yeah the all the other goats are dead the two children are gone and anya taylor joy is there is the only one that's left alive with the black goat that then basically kills the dad right and then also then all that's left is the mom and then anna taylor joy thomason and so the mom's just like well apparently this is you everything i know i'm not doing anything so you must be the cause of all this literally everyone else in the family is dead right right (laughs) so then the mom even starts strangling thomason and thomason then kills her own mom in self-defense yeah and you kind of get from the mom's point of view it's like uh well we had the suspicion and everyone's dead (laughs) yeah exactly what the mom never entertained is like no there's an outside party right there is a witch nearby (laughs) that's done all this it wasn't any of us it was now, maybe though, still, I, I, I guess I still don't know, wonder to what extent the twins were involved in summoning or the witch or acting on her behalf. And then also the thought I had a lot of the way, and, and I'm not saying I believe it is, I think it's at least just one possibility of the film is maybe entertaining is the idea that, wait, what if Thomason is literally the witch and doesn't know it? Mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily fits, but it was at least a possibility that I kind of had in my mind at point. Like, so basically, like, the, is the witch somehow using Thomason against her will or without her knowledge or or were they actually one and the same? It's the whole, you never see them 
at the same time. Although we do see, like you said, when when the witch when the witch is eating the goat, though Thomason, it seems to be Thomason's point of view that we're seeing that through. She's right, there, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, we never find out what happened to the twins. Like, right. did, were they killed by the That's witch? That's true. Yeah, we do. We do never see them again. Um, I guess it's just presumed that they were probably taken to the coven and also smashed up into jelly and smeared <laughs> all over the other. Because the, we see at the very end, we see that there's a coven. Yeah, more yeah. witches. Right. But yeah, so then after the dad and the mom are dead, then Anya Taylor-Joy goes and she's talking to the goat and she's like talking to him and then she's like, okay, you're just a goat. And she like turns around to walk away and... And he basically starts talking, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in like very ASMR, like whispering into the microphone type voice, which I thought was kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah, I don't know what he said, but it's very much like this. Right. Yes. Yeah. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, then basically, though, then basically she, like, signs the compact with him and then go joins the coven. And that, and that honestly, that's yeah. where I was talking about, like, the character art. It is, you, you look at her as the protagonist, and you could argue maybe the dad's the protagonist, but I, I'm going to say she's the protagonist, and it just doesn't seem to flow. There's no, there's no setup and payoff, and, like, you can have her join a coven at the end, but then... I feel like you need to set up, you need to set things up differently. Or you could have her, the way they set her up, I feel like this is not an ending that made sense that was consistent with the character. So, so like, those are kind of my issues more than the filmmaking itself was just kind of like the character arcs to me are incongruous and completely secondary to other stuff that I find less interesting. So, well, it, unless you look at it from like she's really the only character that matters and it's just about her escaping her own family and her dead-end life. But in. then what What inkling have we ever had that this is a path that would remotely interest her? She just gives up and joins the coven uh, when we have nothing... There's nothing that even hinted that she was remotely... And I get this, oh, I've, I've lost everything. Yeah, but she kind of wanted to lose everything. Like, we'll go back to the community. I, it just To me, it just seems out of left field that this would ever be an option. I get that she's just kind of like talking to the goat and kind of a I give up moment, but I don't know. I just... I just kind of rolled my eyes at the ending, honestly. I don't know. Maybe it's like she finally finds her purpose. Like, she didn't have it in the town, and she can't go back because they got banished, and she didn't have it with her family, and they're all dead now, and, like, now what's she going to do? Then you got you to set, set it up better. So, again, that's, I don't know. I just, I just didn't think, it just didn't work for me. I, again, I rolled my eyes at the ending, but it was still an interest. It was still interesting. I didn't, I guess, hate watching it. I just didn't like the movie. I don't know. Kind of like we talked about with Power of the Dog, where it's just like, it's really well made. I don't like it. Oh, we actually never, we haven't talked about Power of the Dog yet since I watched it. Well, but at the time this airs, we will have talked about it on <laughs> Track Nerds. Ah, okay. <laughs> and then there was a couple of things we didn't get to when we talked about the Mayflower last week. And the one big one was we never actually talked about the first Thanksgiving, which I don't want to go. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't need to go into super detail on it. We talked about how only half the people survived that first winter there at Plymouth. And then that they found some stuff from the natives to help them get through the winter. But I think the little bit that we didn't actually mention is how then Squanto was helping them plant stuff in the spring and teaching them to kind of farm this part of the world. And then when that stuff was harvested that fall of 1621, they then had a big feast of Thanksgiving to celebrate their first harvest in the new world. And then that was the origin of the American holiday, even though it didn't become an official holiday until uh, Lincoln declared it so in the 1860s. But we forgot to mention that last time. And I was thinking there was something else we forgot to mention, but I don't remember now what that was. I didn't actually, I don't see where I wrote it down. Something that I forgot to mention that isn't really, it's not a history thing. It's just a a filmmaking thing. Just, Just something else that 
you know, goes to show how authentic they wanted this movie to look and feel. They didn't use any artificial lighting. Uh. All the outdoor shots were only natural lighting, and the indoor shots were all candlelit. And it was not supplemented with anything... Yeah, candles and sunlight. Okay, sometimes they'll fake it. Well, you have a candle, but then you have a backlight. Yeah, no, no, no artificial lighting, because they wanted it to look and feel like you're actually in the 17th century. Which is, to me, it it, it was like a big Kubrick, Barry Lyndon vibes. Oh, interesting. Because it... He, like, very famously only lit that movie using candlelight. But <laughs> the way that he did it was, yeah, he used candlelight, but he also used, like, special lenses designed by NASA for their telescope so he could, like, yeah, it was a candle, but it was, like, amplified and magnified the light somehow that made it look, you know, more like the actual lighting that he wanted. Wait, so, but, they, but they're out in the woods at night. There's no way that's just the actual moon lighting that scene, right? I don't know. <laughs> okay. okay maybe the scenes at night that are outdoors they had some artificial lighting but all the scenes during the day and all the indoor shots are candlelit okay okay lighting i can't speak to the outdoor lighting at night yeah especially because like during the because you can see from a distance the dog that's been eviscerated and it's nighttime yeah unless they like only shot during the full moon and also use some sort of special i don't know I, I Honestly, so again, we're just kind of guessing. You're speculating, right? It's possible the only shot in the full moon, and maybe if you use the combination of fire and mirrors to supplement yeah. the rest of it, you might be able to make it work. And just kind of use yeah. a lot of mirrors to kind of again, maybe this worked, maybe this wouldn't. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a cinematographer. And the trouble is too that uh, fire doesn't look like moonlight. So if they were going to use lighting, they would have had to use something that looks like moonlight. Right. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It may, but maybe maybe you can pump up the the moonlight with uh, just reflective surfaces. Yeah, mirrors or a, or a special lens or uh, yeah. And also, I mean, depending on like if you get a clear night with a full moon, like it's pretty you bright. Can, you can yeah. shoot. You can shoot during that. Yeah. Right, but it's, it's sometimes hard to. Yeah, I guess you have a high dollar lens too. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh it's possible. I, I just don't know enough about it. So we kind of talked about last time how. We had Jamestown, and then, you know, 15-ish years later, you get Plymouth, and then that was kind of the beginning of the flood. And I do want to kind of, because we're, we're going to jump to the Crucible next time, which is going to be a few decades later, so we're going to kind of start skipping around while we stay also in New England here. Just looking at the timeline of colonization, we talked about where Plymouth fell, specifically in the modern United States, but if you go, again, say... Is in Wikipedia, but the timeline of European colonization of North America, it's got its own page and it's kind of gives you a, a breakdown here. And I just wanted to skim through to kind of give us a few bullet points here as we head into talking about the, the, the crucible. So, you know, the, Vi- the Vikings came before, there was a Norse colony in Greenland that died out. Uh, 1492, Columbus, obviously. So, like Ponce de Leon in Florida was 1513. Coronado went from Mexico into eastern Kansas. So I only mentioned that because of Kansas. And there's even like places in Kansas called like Coronado Heights and stuff like that. Uh, that was 15, yeah. That was 1540. Have you ever been there? I don't think so. I don't think so. There's a, you can see it from, I forget which highway it is, but I guess it was like a, like a, a works project administration. It was a WPA project in like the 30s or 40s. Right, right. To, it, like it's not, it's not a fort that Coronado built. Exactly. It was built as a WPA project, but it's like in a location that Coronado 
likely visited. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm always thinking like, oh man, that's so cool. And then like, oh, it's not even 100 years old yet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we talked about the failed Spanish colony of, in Pensacola, Florida. That was 1559. Jamestown, 1607. Again, there's other stuff in like, like Quebec was established in 1608, right? The year after Jamestown. We just kind of skipped that when we're talking about American history. I'm just trying to kind of put, put that kind of stuff on the timeline, though. Plymouth was in 1620, we talked about last week. 1625, New Amsterdam with the Dutch. Salem, which we will talk about uh, extensively next week, 1626. Massachusetts Bay Colony, 1630. Connecticut, basically what becomes Connecticut, the Connecticut Colony, 1636. New Haven, uh, also part of Connecticut, eventually, 1638. Newport, in what is now Rhode Island, 1639. Montreal, up in Canada, 1642. Newark, New Jersey, 1666. Charleston, South Carolina, 1670. Uh, which actually, would that have been Charles II then? Yeah, that would have been Charles II, not Charles I, as I was saying earlier. Is Charlestown uh, the part of Boston? Is that Charles? Is that named after Charles I? That could be. That might sound out a little better. Same yeah. area. That would make more sense. I, I don't have that right here in front of me. So again, that kind of gets us up to then 1690s when we get to the Salem Witch Trials, which we'll talk about next week. So I just wanted to kind of give a quick overview as kind of where we are and just kind of like we're not going to go into super detail to all these colonies but you go from boom 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 boom, 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 boom like think of like a scatter right. plot it's just like a little colony here a decade later a little colony here five years later one year later a month later and then just all at once and then these colonies are just going up like crazy all over the eastern seaboard and the Car- caribbean yeah. and all that kind of stuff so that's just exploding throughout the 1600s so, because like the more successful colonies you have, lets you have then more additional successful colonies. Oh yeah, afterwards. Yeah, success breeds success, and once you kind of get that initial foothold on here, and then they can all kind of help each other, and it's, right. it's so yeah. The colonization of the eastern part of North America and what is today the United States is in full swing as we continue throughout the 17th century here. Stay tuned next week as we break down the film The Crucible.